We are turning to Hosea chapter 11. So Hosea um, chapter 11, that would be uh, after Daniel. For Joel, if you want to, got to Joel, you went too far. And we are continuing a, just a brief series looking at some of the messianic promises uh, that are in the minor prophets to help orient us during this time of the year that we call Advent. Let's look at the first uh, four verses of Hosea 11, although we're really focusing on verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Tonight, we are considering what it means to have God as our Father, and really the, the main proposition that I, I want to explore with you this evening is to, to recognize that the way you come to know God as Father is through God the Son, or put another way, for us to know God as Father, God had to become the Son. Of course, the second person of the Trinity is the eternally begotten Son of God, uh, when we think of God in his essence, the triune God of glory, there always was and always will be, world without end, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity never became the Son of God. He eternally was and is the Son of God. But this one who was before time, the Son of God, became a Son of Man, so that we who are sons and daughters of men can become the sons and daughters of God. How can we know God as Father? It had to be through God becoming a son for us. That's what we want to consider tonight. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. If you think of the book of Hosea, if you're familiar with it at all, there's usually um, one story that stands out, and that's the one that we find in the first three chapters, which is uh, the enacted parable that the prophet is called to live out uh, in front of the nation where he's called to uh, take a, a prostitute and to marry her as a way of vividly describing for or, or picturing for the nation what it's like for God uh, having Israel um, as his people. They are, they are uh, impure and they follow after other lovers and uh, so when we think of Hosea, it pictures God as this perfect husband. Uh, it's famous for portraying God 
in this allegorical way as a husband who remains faithful uh, even to an adulterous lover. Um, but another image is, meets us in this chapter, and that's the image of God as father. So not God as husband, but now God as father. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament commentator, once wrote, this chapter is one of the boldest in the Old Testament, indeed in the entire Bible, in exposing to us the mind and heart of God in human terms. And he's specifically looking at the first four verses there. When Israel was a child, I loved him out of Egypt. I called my son. And then verses three and four, I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. Verse four, I bent down to feed them. A tender picture is painted of God the Father in these verses, a theme which is more rare in the Old Testament compared to the New. Uh, it's really not until you get to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus just um, almost every other verse is, is reminding the people that God is their Father, um, and it's because he can call him Father that they can call him Father. But that image or that language is used very sparsely in the Old Testament. Um, it's used in Psalm 103, a well-known psalm. Uh, Psalm 103, where uh, we read uh, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the, Lord, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Besides that verse and what we have in Hosea, there really aren't a whole lot of other passages that will explicitly call God Father in the Old Testament. Um, but that's what meets us here. Um, Hosea is looking back to the time of the Exodus, and he says that when Israel was small, when Israel was weak, when Israel was defenseless, when Israel was helpless in captivity, uh, slaves in Egypt, at that time, the Lord had mercy, and he called them as a father would go and rescue a, a, a child of his that was kidnapped. That's what the Lord had done. Just like any good parent, God is not content for his children to be far away from home. Uh, you know the tragic stories of parents who endure the, the unspeakable heartache of uh, a child who's gone missing or who has been taken from them, and they will never stop looking. They will never give up. They'll never give up hope. They will do whatever's necessary to get their child back home. And that's what God is saying through the prophet Hosea. Uh, that's, that's what he did back in the Exodus. Out of Egypt... I called my son. Out of captivity, I rescued my son. Out of prison, I brought my son back home. That's what was actually happening in the Exodus. Maybe we don't think of it in terms like that often. But what was taking place in the Exodus is that God was bringing his people, who he calls his son, back from uh, a, a time away from home and bringing them into their true homeland, the, the, the promised land. And so out of Egypt, I called my son. In other words, the reason I did what I did in the Exodus is because Israel is a son to me, is a child to me. And that fatherly image continues in verses 3 and 4. God helps Ephraim. Uh, that's, just, that's like a, a term of endearment for, for Israel. Uh, of course, one of the the, the tribes of Israel, but that, that's a stand-in for the nation as a whole. I taught, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Uh, he's, he's holding his child by 
by uh, their little hands and, and guiding them. If, you, you know, if you've ever had a toddler in the home, you know exactly what the, the picture is here, right? The, the father who is towering over uh, their, their child and he's holding up their arms, helping them balance. Maybe their, uh, their feet are even on his shoes and they're taking steps across the, the living room floor. And the father's got this gigantic smile because he's helping his little one learn how to walk. He's condescending in gentleness to help the one that's small and weak. Verse 4, I bent down to them and fed them. I bent down to them and fed them. God condescending to us. Have you experienced this God? Is this God who is Father, is he your God? Is he your father can you call him father you know we are commanded to as christians it's not something that we should do it's something that we must do i mean if if in no other place we can think of the lord's prayer right you ought to pray like this our father who art in heaven some people have a really difficult time and maybe maybe that's you tonight have a difficult time experiencing or or um uh, yeah, relishing even in the fact that God is Father. And part of the difficulty in some instances, tragically, is that uh, people have had a terrible experience with their earthly father. And they view God through the lens of that human relationship. And they think back on maybe the abuse that uh, they uh, endured from the hands of, of their dad. Or just the, the critical nature uh, uh the the harshness the lack of love um or maybe maybe their dad um went out to um uh, you know get some groceries and never came home and left the family and 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 they never saw him again and then so what people do is they say if if that's what it means for god to be father i don't i don't want to have him or um there's a sensitivity where other people can maybe you know, enjoy this idea of God being Father, and, and yet some of us kind of um, shrink back in the shadows and say, I don't, I don't know what it's like to have God as Father because I didn't have a good Father. But that's really putting everything the, the, the wrong way around, right? It's trying to interpret what God's like through a human relationship rather than understanding our human relationships of fathers and, and, and their children through the lens of God's character, even if you have had the best dad in the world, that dad, that father, the greatest father figure in the world, who was always there at all your soccer games or all your sporting events and, and came to um, all of your different programs and was there when you scraped your knee and, and never um, had a harsh word for you and disciplined you in love, if, even if you had the, the greatest dad in the world, even the love of that dad distorts your understanding of God's love for you when you think of God as a father through that lens. Because even the best human love pales in comparison to God's love. The best human love is still riddled through with sin and selfishness. And so it's, it's not that some people have a hard time accepting God as father because they've had a bad dad. It's all of us need to still get beyond our human experience to understand what God's like in fact, uh, in one sense, we could say Hosea is not using a metaphor or an image at all when he's describing God as a father. 
he's not describing what God is like. He's telling us who God really is. He really and truly is the Father. As I mentioned earlier, in, in the Trinitarian nature of God, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those aren't words we use to kind of try to wrap our mind around who God is. God is Father. The first person of the Trinity is the Father. That's not an anthropomorphism. That's an anthropomorphism is where you use human language to describe God. Now, here's what one author said on the subject. He said, our fatherhood is not the model for God the Father. The reverse is the case. His fatherhood is the model for ours. He's the original. We are the copy. And in that sense, when we say father, we are using a theomorphism. We are speaking about humans in terms that belong originally to God. And so, have you experienced, have you embraced God the Father, God as Father? John Chris, uh, Chrysostom writes this. He says, contemplate the inestimable riches of the divine goodness towards us that you are commanded to call God Father, that one who is earthly is commanded to claim a heavenly, a mortal to claim an immortal, a corruptible to claim an incorruptible, a child of time to claim an eternal father. And he says that we who but two or three days ago were just dust are to, commanded to claim as father him who is from everlasting to everlasting God. And so when Hosea is describing this this God who goes after his wandering child, this God who, who helps the, the little one teeter along and grow and mature, the one who condescends and bends down to feed them and to nourish them. That's the privilege of every Christian. That's what we all receive. Whether you have felt it or not, that is the reality. That is who God is. He is father to us. He's father to Israel, and yet they... Did not, they did not love him as a father. The son called Israel spat in the face of this kind father. Look again at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Some of you here tonight have experienced that parenting reality uh, that this is borrowing from your heart breaks for the children children whom you have loved, you have given everything to, um, and they have, they have walked away. Uh, they have walked away from you. They have turned their backs on you. They have severed a relationship with you, and you've tried to woo them back, and yet they seem to just be pushed away further. That's heartbreaking, and God is saying, that's what my people did to me. That's what my people did to me. This is Israel and her idolatry. Uh, this is all of us in our sin. We take the greatest gift imaginable, having God as our Father, and, and we stomp on that gift, and we abuse that gift. We, we run from it even. God is calling us to life itself, and yet we're told, the more I call them, the more they run away from me. Just like he calls Israel out of Egypt to the promised land and they refuse to enjoy all the blessings that that promised land held for them, so too God calls us into his 
eternal glory and we hold back, we turn, we say, no, and this is, of course, C.S. Lewis's famous um, uh, metaphor, right? We're, we're content to play in the mud rather than have a holiday at the, at the beach. The more they're called, the more they turn. And so we've been there. We miss out on experience this familial love, this paternal care. If there is any hope for us to experience God as Father, then we need God the Son. And so that takes us actually from Hosea um, uh, to a different passage, and that's in the New Testament. If you only read Hosea 11 and you see that he's talking about what happened in the Exodus and the subsequent events, then it really is just a very discouraging and depressing passage. But if you look forward to Jesus Christ, this is an awe-inspiring text. Matthew wants us to do that, and so let's look at how Matthew employs this in the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 2. Let's turn there together. Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 13. Uh, here he pulls out this verse from Hosea and says, if you want to understand the prophet, then you need to do more than look back to the Exodus. You need to look to the person of Christ. Matthew 2, verse 13, the wise men have just left, and this is what we read. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, Joseph rose, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So why did Jesus have to flee to Egypt? The reason's Herod, right? There's um, this awful massacre taking place. He's worried about his future on the throne and now that he hears that maybe the king of the Jews has been born, and so he says, let's kill all these baby boys who are born to the Jewish people. Um, and so they flee to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod. But Herod had no idea what he was up against, of course. Nothing could thwart God's plan of redemption. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. Nothing can thwart his plan of redemption. It's covenanted in the councils of our triune God before eternity began, and one... Uh, proud, arrogant king on the throne isn't going to change that. Uh, this child would be kept, would be protected, because in this child is the fulfillment of God's plans of salvation. And so the angels appear, right? Angels in Christmas, they go together, as well they should, but they do more than just, you know, uh, sweetly singing or the plains glory uh, um, to God in the highest. They are all about protecting this child, too. So Joseph receives yet another uh, uh, encounter from the angels, and they're telling Joseph, it's time to get out of Dodge. You need to get out of here because Herod is trying to kill the child, and we, God's servants, these angelic messengers, we will not allow that to happen. They're not going to allow that to happen. The angels are here to protect this baby boy. They are they're involved um, not just with proclaiming the birth, and pronouncing it afterwards, but also to protect the one who was born. And so Joseph takes his family to Egypt, and the parallels now between Israel and Christ are remarkable. Both have to take, uh, take refuge in Egypt for fear of extinction, right? For 
the Israelites, initially it was they thought they would die due to famine. Here it's that Christ would die due to uh, infanticide. They go to Egypt, um, and we see that it's there that God uh, actually provides protection, but then he also promises he's going to return them back to, to their true home. So they go because of Herod, but it's not just Herod, and now we're going to turn to one other place, and that's Revelation 12. So Matthew 2 gives us a, a better sense of what's happening in Hosea 11, and then Revelation 12 gives us a better understanding of what's happening in Matthew 2. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 12, giving us this fascinating angle on the scene. We're given a look behind the curtain, so to speak. We see what's going on behind the scenes in Matthew 2. We think this is about Herod and his petty rivalry, but it's about something much more sinister at work, and that is nothing less than the plan of Satan himself to destroy the seed of the woman. Herod is just a pawn in this cosmic war. Let me read the first few verses of Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one, is, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne. So uh, some powerful imagery here, some graphic imagery. Uh, there's this woman who's pregnant. And the woman almost certainly actually has a dual representation. On the one hand, she represents Israel. There's the 12 stars that indicate the nation of Israel, which is fitting because um, uh, this is the nation from, from which Christ came. Uh, this is the nation that birthed the Messiah. So in one sense, the woman here in Revelation 12 is Mother Israel. But she's also rightly seen as representing Mary, the, the actual mother of Jesus. And, and this uh, woman who's about to give birth to this child uh, who is to rule all the nations, whose uh, kingdom shall have no end, Jesus Christ, she's about to give birth. Uh, there's someone waiting, and it's not the shepherds, and it's not the wise men. It's this dragon, the red dragon. Um, you know, I preached an Advent sermon like five years ago or six years ago where I talked about there's a dragon missing in most of our nativities. If you have a nativity on your mantelpiece um, or something like that, and it's got the shepherds and the wise men, and the angels and Joseph and Mary and the baby and all that, that you're missing, uh, if you don't have a red dragon, you're missing one of the characters there because Revelation 12 tells us that um, there's this dragon, Satan, ready to devour the child when he's born. And I only bring that up because, actually, I did some research the other day to, as we were thinking about um, moving into a new building. I looked up, I've preached 527 sermons in this pulpit. More people have talked to me about that red dragon sermon than any other sermon I've preached. Years later, people say, hey, what was the sermon about the red dragon and the nativity? So 
Um, something very powerful there, and a few of you actually put red dragons in your nativities, which is really neat. So that comes from Revelation 12, and this is not a copy of that sermon, by the way. I'm just referencing that here. Um, so Satan is, is ready to devour the child that Mary is going to give birth to. That's the graphic image, right? It's like he's there in, in the delivery room. Um, along with, the, with the, the doctors and the nurses and the, and the midwives. But what happens? What happens? Well, verse 5 sort of collapses, it's interesting, um, collapses essentially the whole life of Christ into a few words. It says, her child, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Satan tried to devour the Christ child, but he was protected by God. So when we read Matthew 2, and we're told that the angels appear, and Joseph and the family, they're told to take Jesus to Egypt. There's more than just Herod at play here. There is a cosmic battle taking place, a, a, a cosmic war that is raging. Uh, that's why cosmic soldiers, angels, are the ones who are, are making sure that this child gets to safety. And so we see that it's, um, uh, the, the, the threat is, is much more severe than just Herod. Uh, Herod is being used by Satan to kill this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited son. The devil is behind what takes place there. So they send Jesus to Egypt. Makes sense, logically, uh, it's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. They stay until Herod dies. And once he dies, they return home. And that's when Matthew says, this is all to fulfill Hosea. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Okay, so what does this teach us? It teaches us that the family's journey to Egypt, in particular Jesus himself going to Egypt, um, it's about how his entire life is one of sympathizing with our struggles, with our sorrows, with our weaknesses, knowing our loneliness, knowing our homesickness, we could say, knowing our heartache, knowing our brokenness. Christ came to know all of this. He was, in his very earliest moments, exiled. Exiled. But then God says, out of Egypt I've called my son. I protected him in that time of exile, in that time of of being far away from home, and I brought him back. I brought him back out of, out of his bondage and sorrow and, and, and night. I, I brought my son back home, and we can collapse what, what is being said in uh, Matthew 2 of Hosea 11, just as Revelation 12 collapses all the life of Christ into this one sentence. He was caught up to the throne out of Egypt. It's more than just that time he spent there in Egypt, it's this entire life on earth where he suffered alongside us, and yet God calls him out of that into glory itself in the ascension. Called out of this world of sorrow and caught up to God and to the throne, as Revelation 12 puts it so well. And here is the good news of being a Christian. Here's the, the, the blessing of belonging to Jesus. You will be called out of your bondage as well. You will be called out of Egypt as well. The trajectory of Christ is the, is the trajectory for the Christian. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit so unites us to him 
that what's true of him is true of us. He doesn't just come so he can know our sin and sorrow. He comes so that we can also know his victory and his triumph. It's not just that he was in Egypt, it's that he's out of it now. And we'll be out of it one day too. When God says of Christ, out of Egypt I have called my son, he is saying it to you and to me as well. I am calling you out of your sin. I'm calling you out of your sadness. I'm calling you out of a, a world of woe. And I'm going to bring you home. That's God's promise, right? He's our father. He's not content for his children to be away from home, to be lost, to be wandering. And so his promise is that one day we will experience the cosmic rescue that Christ experienced. We will be called out of this world and we will be caught up to the throne as well. But before the Spirit unites us to Christ, when God calls us, all we do is run. The more I called, the more they ran, the more they went away. But when we're, when we're given the Spirit, we must go where God calls us. For now, that does mean we're in Egypt. Now, that does mean we're pilgrims. Now, that does mean we are away from home. We do experience sadness and sin. But God is calling us out of it. And as Christians, we must follow. We will follow. We will find our true home. Where is that? It's in heaven, of course, where Christ is. Uh, we can't say that often enough, that that's where we belong. That's where our citizenship lies. Uh, but we do, we do need to remind ourselves, especially as we face trials um, or, or troubles or hardships that uh, could, could bring us to the point of despair. We need to be reminded, and we talked about this in Sunday school earlier, this is just a little while. This isn't, this isn't even really your life. Not when you compare the glory that's soon to be revealed to you. That's That's reality. That's, that's what we're made for. But while we are called to suffer, we can take heart knowing we have a Savior who sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, although he never succumbed to them. And he was never left to them. He conquered them through God's almighty power. The plan of redemption has been accomplished. Satan and his forces have failed Christ is now reigning in glory, and if you've put your faith in him, then God's words of love and victory are words for you. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. He's called us to be with him. So where is Christ? Christ, he is out of Egypt. He's out of this world. He's out of this place of bondage, and he's in his true home. He's in heaven, and that's where we must look for him as well. That's where we set our sights there's a great poem that orients us in that way, a Christmas hymn. It says, we went to Bethlehem, but we found the babe was gone and the manger was empty and alone. And whither has he fled? To Calvary, they said, to suffer in our stead. So we went to Calvary, but we found the sufferer was gone, the place all dark and lone. Whither has he fled? Into the heavens, they said. Do not seek him down below. So then it is to heaven that we must go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the 
promise of your word, which tells us that uh, this world is not all that there is, uh, that because of your fatherly love and care for us, you have called us out of the world. You've done that already in conversion and uh, regeneration. We are set apart. Uh, we are in the world, but we're not of it. And soon you will call us out entirely where we will be home with our Savior at last. We pray that you would help us to seek him, to seek the things that are above where Christ is, and that one day soon we would find him and we would be made like him. We pray this in his name. Amen.